Okay, today is February the 14th, 2012, which is Valentine's Day. So, in keeping with Valentine's, someone sent me something that I thought would be nice for Valentine's. Um, Some of you may have heard this before, but if not, I think you will like it. We're going to be pretty academic tonight, so I thought we could have a little levity to begin with, maybe, if everything goes well. Okay, let's see what this is. Okay. Can y'all hear that? Okay, maybe it's too too loud. Let me turn it down. So. This is a guy that is uh, he's starting out by giving some uh, titles of songs, song titles. Can you hear this?
No, that's not Ray Stevens. Well, I thought y'all would need a little of that because uh, we're going to get pretty deep into some things here. Well, this was this was a uh, DVD, and if you are seeing it, it's it's even better. I know that was all corn tone, but I like it. I like Laurel and Hardy. Uh, sometimes. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness and for this time that we can come and study Your Word, that we can be prepared, that we won't be sheepish, afraid, and run away from the battle, but that we'll be able to stand firm and make a difference because we know how to handle and rightly divide Your Word. So we pray that You will help us to focus, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in... <coughs> Getting the gospel right under perseverance. Last time we were in John chapter 15. And there are many times in this particular part of Scripture where it's talking about abiding. And what we get out of that, John uh, 15 uh, chapter 1, and we went all the way through uh, verse 9. We also looked at verse uh, 14 in John 15. Then we jumped over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 and 28. Again, the same writer is talking about abiding. Here's the main thing to understand. When John is talking about abiding, it has zero zilch, nothing to do with eternal salvation. We don't abide in eternal salvation because it's already an accomplished fact. And that's where so many people get off is because they think that you have to maintain your own salvation. They have different avenues of doing that. But essentially, they still think that the abiding is incumbent upon you and you are the one that has to manage it in order to maintain your salvation. If you don't do it, then some will say you weren't really saved to begin with. So this is the gist of that. Now we get into uh, a new portion. I'll put it up on the board for you. And turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. Actually, that's the meat of our, of our subject matter tonight in those verses, but let's start a little bit earlier to get some context here. Starting with verse 15, it kind of reminds me of Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 because it is giving the uh, exaltation of Jesus Christ and how He is exalted above all things. 
Verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Of course, this is not suggesting that Jesus Christ is a creature, a created being. Uh, this has to do with the uh, issue of promogeniture, which means that he is the firstborn and has certain rights that firstborns, the firstborn would have. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. That says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, we start to see the uniqueness of our Savior in these verses. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I have a big old highlight on that verse because I like to think that if Jesus Christ ever let go, the world would just disintegrate. All the atoms that are held together that uh, really are the building blocks that hold things together, it's Jesus Christ is that invisible force that's, that's holding all things together. And then sometimes you might think about in, when you pray, and you feel like there's a lot of pressure and you're trying to hold on to a lot of things and keep it all together, and you can just thank the Lord that it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon the Lord to hold all things together. You don't have the power to, but He does. And when you take your burden and throw it on Him, and you, you trust Him to hold it together, He'll do it. Verse 18, He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything, first place in our lives as well. Verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now we're getting to <clears throat> verse 21, which is our, our Scripture. The reason we're going to this Scripture, by the way, is I'm picking Scriptures out that people go to and try to allege that you have to abide, work, maintain these type of things in order to truly be saved. And I'm going to show you uh, how anytime someone tries to get that perspective, then they're off track. Verse 21. In fact, I'll put verse 21 up here because that's where... Well, I already have it, don't I? Okay. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... I think it's interesting that it says that you were hostile in mind because that's why they were hostile... Indeed, because first of all, it comes from the soul. It comes from the thinking. They were hostile to God in their mind, and then it developed itself in deeds. Yet He has now reconciled you. We have the yet, and, and that means it's somewhat of a contrast. At one time, you were hostile in mind, yet He has now reconciled you. I'll get back to this in a moment and give you the morphology and everything of this word. That's a very important word that you would not recognize in the English, but I'll bring it out in the Greek. 
Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Now can you see why this would be of concern to some people who embrace the doctrine of Grace alone, it's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. In other words, we are grace-oriented, and this sounds as if, look at verse 22, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, there will be some who would say, see, if you don't continue in the faith, then you'll lose your salvation. There will be others who allege that if you don't continue in the faith, then it is a sign that you were not really and truly born again. You didn't have the right kind of faith. You didn't have enough faith. You may, thought, you may have thought that you're saved, but if you don't continue in the faith firmly and establish steadfast, if you move away from the faith in any way, then you're, it's a proof that you are not saved. Now, this is what people will allege. We have to be prepared for verses like this, and so we're going to look at it more closely. Let's start with verse, first, verse 22. It's talking about in verse 21, of course, that they were hostile at one time, but now, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. What is that talking about? Anybody got an idea? What do you think he's talking about here? Is he talking about the cross? Yes, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about uh, that he has now reconciled you. The you, we're gonna, I'm going to show you, he is talking to believers. He's not saying something to unbelievers. He is referencing and addressing believers. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body in death in order, there was a purpose for reconciling you, to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now let's look at this word uh, reconciled, because that's a very important word. In the Greek, it's kind of a long word here. It's apokatalasso. A-P-O-K-A-T-A-L-L-A-S-S-O. It's a verb and it's an aorist active indicative. So there was a point in time that he reconciled. Who is he talking to? He's talking about believers. So far you, you're thinking, as what many people would, okay, uh, it sounds like he's talking about everything being positional here. In his flesh, he reconciled us through his death, Right? Certainly that would be talking about the cross and being reconciled. We know we all had to be reconciled to God because of our sin and uh, other things. So, However, this apokatalasso, uh, uh, this, this katalasso means to reconcile, but apokatalasso is stronger term uh, for reconcile, to reconcile, differing from katalasso. The katalasso is the normal verb, but the, you add the apa to it, the A-P-O, and it changes things altogether. So it differs from katalasso. Katalasso means to reconcile, to set up a relationship 
of peace not existing before. This is from the Zodiades Dictionary, and this is quoting from that dictionary. So if this word was katalasso, it would be talking about reconciling unbelievers where there was no relationship before, and then they would be reconciled in the point of gospel hearing and accepting the gospel, and they would start having a relationship that they did not have before if this word was katalasso. Y'all with me so far? However, in that apa katalasso is the restoration of a relationship of peace which has been disturbed. Now, what does that tell you about what we're looking at? Let's look back at our verse now, understanding the, the full meaning of reconcile. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, according to this word, what reconcile means, uh, what we saw about reconcile, is he talking about when they were reconciled at the point of salvation? Or is he talking about believers who got off track somewhere along the way and now has to be renewed, they have to be reconciled again to, to, to God in order to reestablish the peace and harmony? Which is it? It's the latter, isn't it? And see, you would never know that in the English, but when you look close at this word in the Greek, it doesn't mean to set up a relationship of peace not existing before. When you add those three letters, apa, to katalasso, it changes it and means it's a restoration of a relationship of peace which has been disturbed. It was already at peace at one time, but they got off base, and now this relationship has to be restored. Everybody understand that? Okay? And we're talking about, yes, we're talking about the fact that when Christ died on the cross, it was not only to restore, I mean, to us reconcile us, katalasso, meaning we didn't have a relationship before, and then a new one was established, and that's the, in a positional sense. But this word being apakatalasso is saying, it is restoring a fellowship, I mean, a, a relationship that had already existed that got off track. When Christ went to the cross, he established that type of reconciliation as well. Let's, let's move on. Oh, I'll just give this to you. Christ's death on the cross accomplished reconcilia reconciliation which had two purposes. When Christ went to the cross, it had two purposes of His reconciliation ministry. Number one, positionally to reconcile us to God, which is instantly and completely accomplished when one believes in Christ. And here's a scripture that would, would apply to that. Hebrews 10:14. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So when we believe in Jesus Christ... We were reconciled. Positionally, we are perfect in His, in His sight. We don't have to maintain that. It's an accomplished fact. That is one purpose of Christ in His reconciling ministry on the cross. Most people understand that, or at least some do. But here's the second one which a lot of people don't understand and you could not understand this verse apart from knowing this. Point two. 
to experientially reconcile us by continuing firmly, steadfast in the faith. In other words, one reason that He died on the cross was to reconcile us, reconcile us to God positionally, but also experientially. And here's the verse that would explain that as well. In Colossians 1.28, this is just a few verses down the way in the chapter and that we're in, in chapter 1. He says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now that's only a potential. Do you see that? That uh, Paul and his comrades were uh, admonishing, uh, encouraging, and exhorting and correcting every man and teaching them with all wisdom so that we, that would be Paul and his uh, Others that were teaching them may present every man complete in Christ. Present him where? Present him when? What is this talking about? Well, we'll get to that soon enough. But you can see how that is very close to what we see here. In order that you may present, in order to present you before him, in other words, Christ died on the cross. He reconciled us in His fleshly body in order. One of the reasons He did that is so that uh, we could be presented before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, here's the thing. If, indeed, you continue in the faith firmly established. Now, you'll notice I have under reconciled, it's an aorist active indicative. That means it happened in a point of time. Active voice is Jesus Christ that produced the action, indicative mood, meaning reality. He did that on the cross. He reconciled us. One reason He reconciled us is so that we could be acceptable to God. We could be reconciled to God because Christ took care of our sin problem. But the other part is what we have here. In order to, the reason, one of the reasons that He did this was to present you, believers, and present is an aorist active infinitive in appointed time that he would present you, believers, before him, holy and blameless, and beyond reproach. We're going to see that we are going to be presented before God at the judgment seat of Christ. And when we are presented, some will be will appear who will be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, don't take those words uh, as if they mean as uh, literally as they are because I'm going to show you there's other verses that have these uh, adjectives in them that apply to us, and yet it doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means you are beyond a baby believer that doesn't even know how to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you are marching forward, and you are applying doctrine, and you are holy and blameless in that sense. The Bible tells us, be holy for I am holy. Does that mean that we have a chance to be holy as God? No. But there is a relative holiness that he's talking about there. <clears throat> now you'll notice one of the reasons that Christ in His fleshly body 
through death, went to the cross to reconcile us is so that we can be presented holy and blameless. Now, look at verse 23. If, you see the first after that, that means it's a first class conditional clause. You would think it would be a third, but it's not. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith and continue as a present active indicative. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that the Colossians were persisting. They were continuing to be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. They were being steadfast and firmly established. They were doing that. We know that from that first class conditional clause. But what Paul is saying, continue to do that. Because there's always a chance that you can fall off the, the orthodox wagon, I guess you could say. You could always backslide. You could always get off into reversionism. And so he's exhorting them to keep on doing that. So he says, you have that opportunity to be presented holy and blameless, beyond reproach, if indeed you continue steadfast, look at this, in the faith, firmly established. Now this is, this is an important one here. If indeed you continue, and they were continuing, and he says, keep on, present active indicative, in the faith, firmly established is a participle, but it's a perfect Passive participle. Remember when you see perfect tenses, you say, okay, this is an important word, it's an important verb, because this verb means whatever took place here, it has ongoing results to it. Being firmly established is a perfect tense. So them being firmly, firmly established would have ongoing results. But look at this, it's in the passive voice. What does that mean? The way they were firmly established is by continuing to receive something. You see, we can't be firmly established by gritting our teeth and gutting it out. The only way that we can be firmly established in the faith is by having a continuing influx of something, something that we must continue to receive. And what do you suppose that is? If you said grace, you'd be right. If you said mercy, you'd be right. If you said doctrine, you'd, be, you'd hit the bullseye. See what we need? In order to, and it's something that we receive. On our own, we can't do this. But he's saying, if you continue to do this, if you continue, and they were continuing up to that point, and the continue is the present act of being ongoing in the faith, firmly established, perfect tense, and you continue to take in this spiritual nourishment and, and steadfast. This is just an adjective, but this is a participle. I'll explain participles after a while. Yes, Michael. When it's talking about the faith here, it's talking about the body of faith. It, it, yeah, it's talking about when we, when we say that we should stand firm for the faith, we're talking about if you just ex, uh, substituted the word doctrine for faith, it would work just as well because that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about that you have to continue to go back to that instance that you believed in Christ and, and, and continue to reassert that or try to affirm it. What, that's history. It's done. 
It's talking about moving on. Now, we don't have faith in Christ as our Savior all the time. I mean, in in our minds, we we don't wake up and say, okay, now I've got to make a conscious effort today to make sure I'm going to have faith in Christ as my Savior in order to make sure that I'm going to uh, be reconciled to God and not fall off the wagon. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about that we are going to continue in the faith. In the faith refers to in the doctrine. And if we do, firmly established, passive voice, we keep on taking that and we're steadfast, and we're not moved away. The part of, this is a participle also, and it's a present passive participle. I think it's interesting that that's in the present tense. See, here's the danger. This is where we want to be, firmly established, and not moved away. But not moved away... Both of that, that's a strange morphology to that word to me. Because you would think it would be active voice, you moving away. But it's not. It's in the passive voice, meaning you receive something. So what it's essentially saying is, if you're going to be steadfast and not moved away, meaning not be distracted, we're always getting things. See, it's a competition in your soul. Are you going to continue to be steadfast, firmly established, a passive tense, getting doctrine into your soul? Or are you going to be distracted and have something else coming into your soul? You see, your soul isn't just vacuous and empty. Always you're going to have something, information, data coming in all the time in your soul. And, of course, they didn't call it data back then, but essentially what he's saying is what you need to do is be steadfast. You're doing good, see? If indeed you are, this would be he's essentially saying, you're doing good indeed, continue. Keep on continuing in the faith. It's going to have ongoing blessings for you. And if you continue to take in the right thing, which is doctrine. And if you continue in that, steadfast, and not be moved away. Don't be distracted. I would think that would be in the aorist tense, but it's not. It's in the present tense. And, you know, I I don't want to read more into that uh, present tense and what's there, but it sounds to me like it's kind of expected that it's going to happen. You're going to be distracted from time to time. And don't let it become a habit. Do you understand? I'm not trying to give you any leeway, but the present tense means don't, let it become a habit of becoming distracted and getting other stuff into your mind, into your soul, that's going to put you in danger, being in danger of what? Of not being presented before Him, holy and blameless. There's the danger. The danger isn't that you're going to lose your salvation. The danger is that you won't be presented to Him holy and blameless. And where is that talking about? The judgment seat of Christ. Now, I know this is not an easy verse, but I want you I know you can get it. I've got a lot more information for it, so let's continue here. Here's an excerpt from a journal that is off target concerning Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Now, this is, you know, when you go into the uh, theological journals and you go into commentaries and you go to all these writings by these very sophisticated uh, well-educated, uh, very credentialized guys. Not many women there, but 
uh, for the most part, you can't just because you see it in print and they have been published and they're well known, you can't take for granted that what they're saying is true. We have to measure everything by our systematic theology and what we've learned in the Bible. So this is what he's saying about the verse we just read and I just explained and see if you can pick out the errors in here. This is what he says. And this is, where did this come from? Well, here's the excerpt. These verses which say that the true believer continues in the faith are not meant to teach the Arminian doctrine that we can lose our salvation. Uh, salvation is the work of God. So far, so good, right? We do not obtain salvation by any work. We do or anything that we have the ability, uh, anything that we have the ability to do. And we do not keep our salvation by our ability to keep on trusting Christ. True. The God who brought us to faith in Christ guards us and keeps us in faith. This is the means of accomplishing His end. This means that all those who are born again will persevere and continue in faith. Any who do not continue to believe have never been born again. You see? I could tell by the size that you got it. And this is what people will be pointing to and saying to you. Now, this is a verse that this is still part of this uh, excerpt that he's trying to make his point. He said, 1 John 2:19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but, went out, but they went out so that, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now, we're not, <laughs> we're not claiming that everybody goes to church are believers. There are people out there who profess to be Christians who are not. But you can't take a verse like this and superimpose it on Colossians chapter uh, 1, verse 21 through 23, and say, see, anyone who does not continue to believe uh, have never been born again. Uh, it's, it's, the two do not go together. Because if anyone asks you, does everyone who profess that they are Christ, uh, that they are believers and Christians, are they? Is every one person that says they're believers, believers? Absolutely not. But the criteria is not whether they leave you or not or, main, or even their behavior. It's mainly about what they say because what they say is probably revealing what their belief system is. Now he goes on to say, If a person gives up the faith and stops trusting Christ, that is an indication that that person never truly believed in the first place. Well, I'm sure that there are believers in the... Uh, Bible, like Saul and like Solomon, uh, like Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, there are several of them that uh, certainly uh, stopped trusting. And uh, I, would, I would say they were still believers. The important question for your salvation, let's see. Yeah, this is still the same guy. The important question for your salvation is whether you are trusting Christ now. If you are asked whether you are saved and your answer is, is only I raised my hand at a campfire or I trusted Christ in Sunday school or I knelt by my bed when I was a child and asked God to save me, then the answer 
maybe that answer may be insufficient. And that's true. It could be just depending on when you knelt down by the bed or you raised your hand at the campfire, whatever it is, what was it you were believing? What was it that was told to you that said this is the gospel? If you can only look to the past but not... If you can, let's see, I lost my place here. Oh, here it is. If you can only look to the past but do not have present faith in Christ, then there is no real indication that you are saved. If you say that you ask Christ to save you, from your sin when you were a child, but now you are content to live in sin, then there is no indication that God has ever done a work of grace in your life. First of all, we don't, what he's saying, we don't ask God to save us. What we do is believe the gospel message that Christ died for our sins. He is the Son of God, and He's offering eternal life to us. But he's, do you see the ongoing uh, responsibility of you continuing to believe? And He's not talking about believing in doctrine. He's talking about believing in Christ. Do you get that? And if we have time, I'll show you that believing in Christ uh, if, if you stop believing in Christ after you believe the gospel, does that cancel out everything? Of course not. I'll take you some places to show you that. Now, let's get some, 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 some good information here. This is from the Journal of Grace Evangelical Society, Volume 6. It was, uh, this was written in 1993. Paul was not saying, now here's the quote, that believers are slaves to righteousness in their experience. Believers will only be presented at the judgment seat of Christ as being holy, blameless, and beyond reproach if in this life they have continued in the faith. That's not hard to understand, is it? In other words, it's not talking about whether you're a believer or not. It's talking about whether you're going to be presented at the judgment seat of Christ being blameless and holy and beyond reproach. And that's not going to happen if you don't hold steadfast in the faith. You got that? Now, here is something that I found, and I was so proud that I found this. This is an article, short article, on these verses from Bob Wilkin. Some of you recognize that name here's the it's only a, a page and a half two pages it's continuing in the faith a condition of eternal life and he gives colossians 21 through 23 and that's what we've been studying now you might think why are we spending so much time on a verse because it's important there are people that are going to point to this someday even if they don't you need to have it solidified in your own soul what this is talking about so you won't buy into the idea that you have to maintain your own salvation. So this is what Bob says, and he says it has some real good comments. There's the verse. We've already read that. He says, and he talks about if he had a nickel for every time he'd been asked a question about this verse, he'd be rich and so forth. Does these verses uh, teach that those who failed to continue in the faith were never saved in the first place? And the answer, well, he asked another question. Does this verse teach that eternal life can, only, can be lost by failing to continue in the faith? 
Or does it show that you will never believe her if you don't continue? And he's saying the answer is to both questions is no. Paul says that the Colossians he was addressing were once alienated from God but were now reconciled to Him by the death of Christ. Now, what would that tell you? Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers. People who are no longer alienated from God are clearly believers. The fact that those being addressed were believers is confirmed by Paul's exhortation to continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This is in addition to Paul's earlier reference to the faith which the readers had in Jesus in uh, verse 4. This is Colossians 1, 3 through 4, same chapter, a few verses earlier. We give thanks to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Why am I establishing that this, these are believers? Because if you understand that they're believers to begin with and you understand you can't lose your salvation, he's not talking to making a condition for unbelievers that have to be reconciled and continue to maintain that. He's talking to believers. And what they might risk, what the danger is that they won't be presented at the judgment seat of Christ being holy, blameless, and without reproach. That's the goal. That's what we want. Unbelievers, by definitions, do not believe. They have no faith to continue in, no hope to hang on. Remember when I was teaching James chapter 2, one of the main things you had to get, understand to begin with was what? He was talking to believers. He's talking to believers here as well. The key, the key question is this. What did Paul mean when he said that God reconciled them in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight? It was a great mistake to view this purpose statement as dealing with the possession of eternal life. He's not talking about eternal life here. This is not positional. Reconciliation has two goals. One goal of reconciliation is eternal life. That goal is guaranteed and is fulfilled immediately at the moment of faith. And we have John 3:16, John 6:47 and so forth. The second goal, being presented holy and blameless and beyond reproach before God, is neither guaranteed nor fulfilled immediately at the point of faith. He's saying the same thing I was saying that this Jesus Christ went to the cross to reconcile us not only in the sense of acquiring eternal life, but also that we will be presented without reproach, blameless and holy, at the judgment seat of Christ. The second goal concerns a future presentation. The question is, what is in view here? Is there, is there to be some judgment of believers? Is there some time when believers will be presented before God? What would you say? You know about it. Yes. The judgment seat of Christ is such a time. Believers will be judged and presented by the Lord Jesus before God the Father. Some will be found to have good and, will be good and faithful servants. These are those who will be presented as having lived lives which are holy, blameless, and above reproach. Others will be found to have been worthless servants. And he gives Luke chapter 19, uh, gets reference it's a parable there and they will not be presented as having lived exemplary lives 
Many miss this simple solution because they jump to the conclusion that the terms holy, blameless, and beyond reproach must be taken in an absolute sense. And they are not. However, the original Greek words used here are used elsewhere in the Scripture to refer to actual experience of those who live an exemplary but certainly not perfect life. For example, elders are required to be beyond reproach in their experience, Titus 1.6. Likewise, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists of the tribulation are said to be blameless before the throne of God, since in their mouth was found no deceit, Revelation 14.5. This clearly refers to their experience in this life, not to their position in Christ. Are y'all getting this? Even the term holy is used in Scripture to refer to experience. Peter, citing a key Old Testament verse from Leviticus, tells his believing readers, Be holy, for I am holy. Similarly, Paul refers to unmarried women believers who care about the things of the Lord that they may be holy both in body and in spirit. 1 Corinthians 7.34. You understand why that's important? He's not talking about these terms in absolute terms. If he's talking about them in absolute terms, then someone could make an argument that this is positional, but this isn't positional. How do we know? Well, we know why that word reconciled. is not talking about establishing a new relation by being Reconciled is talking about re-establishing an old one that was already made. Trusting in Christ alone is the sole condition for eternal salvation. However, continuing in faith is required in order to be presented at the judgment seat of Christ as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what this verse is about. It has no experiential Connota- I mean, no uh, positional connotation to it. He's talking to believers. And he's telling them, this is another reason you were reconciled. See, if you weren't reconciled to begin with, you'd have no way of being approaching... Uh, well, you wouldn't even be a believer to begin with. You wouldn't be at the judgment seat of Christ. You'd be at another judgment. Which judgment would that be? The great white throne judgment, right. Continuing in the faith takes obedience over a lifetime. As Paul said elsewhere, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you see, I am just trying to bombard you with these potentials and these warnings throughout the whole New Testament. Warning after warning after warning after warning. Hold on. Stand firm. Don't lose your confidence. It's going to have a great reward. None of these have anything to do with eternal salvation. They are all experiential. There was particular need for, the, for this stress on continuing in the faith at Colossae. The Colossian church was besieged with heretical teachings. These teachings were a mixture of Greek philosophy, mysticism, and Jewish legalism. For example, Paul had to warn the church not to worship angels. This is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Or to adopt ascetic lifestyles in the hope that neglecting the body could somehow aid in keeping the flesh at bay. This is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. That's why he was saying, don't get off course. Don't listen to these ascetics saying that 
uh, you need to join some monastery. Uh, go and be alone and deprive yourself and you'll get closer to God. Is that what God told us to do? No. He said go out through all the world. We are His messengers. We are His witnesses. Not seclude ourselves and through, through self-effacement trying to be accepted by Him. Colossians 1, 21-23 does not teach that eternal salvation can be lost through failure to abide in the faith. Nor does it teach that one who fails to abide proves he wasn't saved in the first place. Do you get that? That's the main gist of this. What it does teach is that abiding in faith is required for one to have a good report at the judgment seat of Christ. And if the Bible is talking about this as being a big deal, being at the judgment seat of Christ, we just kind of slough it off, most of us. We just think, oh, well, you know, I'll be there someday. But, you know, that's in the, that's in the great by and by. I don't have to sweat that right now. Uh, I have bills to pay. I've got children that are unruly. I've got all these other things. But the Bible's making a big deal of it, isn't it? This reminds me when I was in high school. I used to, uh, our coaches... Uh, would get our report cards every year, and we'd have to stand in a line down the hall right to the door of his office. And everybody would be standing in line, and if you got a conduct cut, if you got a DRNF, you got a certain number of swats. And so we're out there standing there with our report card like this, and we're standing there waiting for our turn, and you would be hearing, what, 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 what? And you just cringe, you know, and you look at your card again. Oh, oh, I have a conduct cut. What's that? That's a whack, see? You know, some guys had a D's or S's. What, what do you think? They were sweating bullets. Now, that's nothing compared to, I guess, what it's going to be like at the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, that's how I can relate it, though, you know. We're, we're getting a report card. God's keeping track of what's going on. And you're going to have to go into His office and stand before Him, and He's going to look at your report card and say, wow, you, you stood steadfast and, and, and you are blameless and without reproach. You continue to grow in doctrine. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Man, what great news. And he's going to say, you're not going to believe what I've got for you. Or you can be standing there and giving the report. And he looks at it and he... What are you going to be doing long about then? You're going to wish you paid more attention back there at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, and that you got it right. It didn't have anything to do with eternal anything uh, with regards to eternal salvation. It's saying you better get your act together. You better not be distracted because that day is surely coming. You will stand before Him. And you can. The potential is that you will be blameless, without reproach, without spot a wrinkle, not in literal terms, absolute terms, but in, but in an experiential term. Unstated here, but found in many other passages, is the truth that those who are found to have been good and faithful servants will obtain eternal treasures and rewards as a result of the good report. I might say good report card. My prayer for each of you is that you might 
live lives which are holy, blameless, and above reproach, so that someday the Lord Jesus will say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I'll tell you what. I am thankful that I have students of the Word of God that can come here on a Tuesday night and have to delve into aspects of the Greek in order to get a, an English translation of some somewhat innocuous verses to straighten things out and you pay attention the whole time. That, that speaks volumes. I, I hope that this will initiate in you some confidence, not arrogance, but confidence with regards to your eternal sense of destiny. That you won't be sweating bullets now, dreading standing before Jesus Christ, but you might even be anticipating some of the great rewards and decorations and things that are going to last for all eternity. That's not arrogant. That's just recognizing that you're on course. And that's what this verse is all about. And when someone goes to this verse, like this guy did in that article that was obviously extremely Calvinistic, thinking that if you don't walk the straight and narrow, then you won't. It, it proves you really weren't saved to begin with. Aren't you glad that you're not into that? I mean, that you don't think that you have to keep from falling, that you have to persevere? If you don't persevere, you really weren't elect? Do you know how, many, how that has crippled spiritually so many people? People have gone into the psych wards by the hundreds of thousands, maybe even in the millions, because they were afraid they weren't truly elect, because they did something, they got out of line, and now they're afraid they really weren't saved after all because they're looking at their behavior. And all we have to do is look at the Word of God and it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And we believed and we can thank Lord, the Lord for all eternity that we can have that confidence now. And what this is talking about is not warning us, maybe we're not really saved, but it's encouraging us and exhorting us to keep on keeping on. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. Even these verses that we have to pick apart and dissect and look at it very critically in order to get the correct understanding. This is how you, you have meant your word to be studied, not just a casual glance. There are those who would take this verse, and the John 15 and other verses that we've been looking at, and try to make them experiential, try to make us doubt our salvation. We're so thankful that you have that indisputable, correct, and plenary, complete, immutable Word that's alive and powerful. And we pray that You will help us to remember these things so that we won't be sidetracked if anyone ever tries to point to this verse or any other of the verses that they try to distract us on putting the responsibility of our eternal salvation on us. We're so thankful that it is You and it's an accomplished fact. So we pray that you will help us to remember these things, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.